if you think about over the long term, um, including the the, the alfalfa brome in the five-year rotation, that um, additional nitrogen from biological fixation in the alfalfa, you know, contributed to um, accumulation of soil organic nitrogen over time. So the I guess basically the nit the, the long-term soil nitrogen balance is much different in the in the five-year rotation compared to the wheat fallow rotation, which you know, thinking about it isn't isn't really a surprise. Hello folks and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We hope that the agronomic knowledge from this and future podcasts brings value to you and your farm. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Miles Dick, a professor of soil science in the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta. I talk with Miles about the legacy of the Breton Plots, a long-standing plot research location in Alberta, Canada. We discuss some of the trials that have been around since 1929 and what the Breton plots are providing for agriculture today. We also discuss some of the research they are doing in relation to system management and emissions. All right, here we go. And thank you for listening to the Growing Point podcast. So thank you for joining me today, Miles. Um, you work at the Breton Plots, so uh, maybe describe to me what your role is uh, at the Breton Plots, and and uh, um, you know what the Breton Plots look like, and and you know, we can get into uh, um, a lot of the work that's done there. Okay, great. Um, so I'm a I'm a professor of soil science in the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta, and the Breton Plots. Uh, I guess my role in the Breton Plots, I'm the the chair of the Breton Plots management team. And um, uh, so I guess, and I'm also a researcher at the Breton Plots. So as, as chair of the, uh, well, maybe it's better to, to put it in the perspective or the context of what we do at the plots. So, um, so probably the, what the Breton Plots are most well known for is the long-term uh, experiments. So we have uh, two uh, long-term experiments. Uh, one is called the classical plots. Those were established uh, in 1929, uh, the same year the, the, the Breton plots were, were established by the Department of Soils back in that day at the University of Alberta. And um, so that experiment has two long-term rotations, uh, a wheat fallow rotation and a five-year cereal forage rotation. Uh, and so those have been going on and they're continuing uh, to this day, uh, uh, so over 90 years. Um, the, the second long-term experiment is called the Hendrigan plots, which were named after a, a farmer in the Breton area, uh, Lou Hendrigan. And that's a, a long-term experiment that was established in 1980 by Bill McGill, who was the a professor in the Department of Soil Science at that time. And it compares um, three rotations of different, um, I guess, uh, intensity, you want to call it, or um, diversity probably is the best word. So a, a permanent forage rotation. Um, which was kind of what uh, Lou Hendrigan, the farmer in the area, was uh, said that worked best for him. It's a, it's a white Dutch clover, red fescue mix uh, forage. And then the, there's an eight-year cereal uh, forage pulse rotation um, and, uh, and then a continuous grain, which has been cereals mostly. Um, since night barley and Trey Cayley. So um, we can get into to the, the details of those if you want, but uh, kind of those are the, the main things or the, the main two experiments that probably Breton plots are known for. 
And so as the chair of the management team, I guess the management team uh, makes decisions about the ongoing management of those experiments. Um, uh, for example, the, the varieties of crops that are planted to make sure we're planting modern, modern varieties um, and to adjust uh, fertility if needed, um, because, you know, as the yield potential of modern varieties increases, we, we've had to increase fertilizer rates. Um, and, uh, you know, weed uh, management and, and all those things associated with, um, with making sure that these are viable long-term experiments. I imagine that the way we manage these plots in 1929 are certainly not the same way that we're going to be managing them today. So it's good that there's people in place that are asking the question, you know, is what we're doing still relevant to producers today? Because that's the goal, right? Is to still have the information extracted from this relevant to producers today. Absolutely right. And so then, you know, that kind of, you know, like wheat, the wheat fallow rotation, which is uh, certainly not anything that's kind of practiced these days, but but was kind of popular, you know, in, in the 30s and 40s when the plots were established. I mean, we, we still continue running that rotation, you know, just kind of as a, um, a reference, I guess, right? To, to, and then, um, you know, the, the five-year, the serial forage rotation that was established in 1929, uh, I imagine that was, a, you know, kind of ahead of its time at that time. But, you know, now it kind of offers us kind of two, two ends of the, the spectrum in terms of diversity of rotations and um uh yeah so um you know in keeping them relevant for example in in the five-year rotation when you have oats in a rotation um we developed a, a heck of a problem with wild oat pressure and uh so just last growing season we we decided to replace the oats with uh, canola for one rotation cycle to uh to see if we can get a better handle on wild oat control that way. So that's kind of one example, most recent example of how the management team is, is trying to make these plots um, still relevant for farmers. So. So, so you chair that, that committee that makes the decisions on, you know, what can we change? Are we making it the change for the appropriate decision? And you, you do your own research at the Breton plots as well, or is that outside of that? That's right. I do my own research and that's, uh, I guess that's separate from the management team. Um, so another role that the management team has um, is, uh, you know, when, when a researcher like myself uh, would like to, to do a field experiment um, at the plots, we submit that request to the management team um, to, you know, to get um, permission to, if it's a, if it's a new experiment and requires, you know, um, land allocation, then that you know that's run through the committee and all that kind of stuff so i guess you know when it when it comes to approving my own research that i kind of exclude myself from the decision because that <laughs> puts me into a little bit of a conflict of interest but um but yeah so that's uh that's the other role of the of the management team there yeah so, so i'm i'm curious miles i mean how many people are on this committee that are making decisions on, on changes to these long-term trials. Right. Yeah. I was going to get into that. So there's uh, myself and Dick Praveen, which is the, he's the manager on the ground manager of the Breton plots, um, long-term employee at, at the university here. Uh, we have uh, Linda Gorham, who's the recently uh, hired chair of agronomy uh, in the department of Agriculture, Food, and Nutritional Science. Uh, that's the, the WGRF-funded chair. Um, uh, Sherry Stridehorst with Wheat and Barley Commission, um, your colleague, and um, she's she joined the management team before she started with, uh, with Wheat and Barley. Um, and uh, we have uh, David Chinasik, who's a emeritus professor in the department a, a soil scientist um, and uh, Guillermo Hernandez who's an associate professor of soil science and 
uh, Sukhdev Mali, who is a retired scientist from with Agriculture Canada. And uh, um, I think that covers it. Um, so we try and have, you know, a variety of uh, membership with diverse backgrounds and a variety of expertise um, to help us make those decisions. Yeah, that is a, a strong list of, of as many years of experience making decisions on that. So I guess when, you know, when something like this comes up of, okay, we have a massive wild oat problem. And, and if we continue down this rotation, it doesn't look like it's going to resolve itself or, or there may, we may have to implement something to mitigate um, challenges in the future. Um, is there certain kind of thresholds or, or questions that, that these decisions have to go through before it's a yes or no? Um, again, you know, these are long standing trials and some of these decisions, you know, has impact on the future. So what, what does that threshold of decision-making look like? Yeah, certainly. It's, um, it's not something that, um, we take lightly or sometimes the decisions kind of get tabled, um, you know, and the discussion continues over, over many meetings. Um, so the example of the, the wild oats, the decision to, to include canola in the rotation, um, that was kind of, uh, more like a last resort, I guess. So, so before we made that decision, um, you know, Dick, uh, the on the ground manager, you know, came to the committee and says, um, you know, a few years ago now, and, and, you know, told us about the wild oak problems and told us about his struggles to, to control them and asked for advice from the committee um, and brought some suggestions to the table as well. So, um, so at, the, at that, uh, I guess, initially the committee um, advised him to um, try as many cultural methods as possible to to help control those weed, the wild oats. So um, one was uh, um, the crop after the oats is uh, barley and it's underseeded to alfalfa. So it's kind of a nurse crop for the alfalfa, which is then grown two years after the barley. So, so one of the, the recommendations was to um, take the barley off as silage uh, rather than harvest the grain. So, so that would uh, remove the, the wild oats before they um, uh, drop their seeds. Um, there was other, because it is kind of small plot, smaller plot research, there's things we can do that couldn't be done on a commercial scale farm. But um, so there was, um, you know, because the, the wild oats did did grow taller than than most of the cereal crops in rotation there there um so there was some efforts to kind of pluck pluck the seed heads or go around with a uh like a <laughs> i guess stick used a hockey stick with a rag soaked it in, in a roundup solution to just you know touch touch the heads of the wild oats that were sticking up and and so different you know different things like that um but uh you know, it's, uh, um, you know, after many decades of, of having oats in the rotation, it's, um, there's such a, a huge seed bank, uh, weed seed bank there that, um, those methods, although they did, you know, help a little bit, there was still, they still didn't, um, solve the problem to, to our satisfaction. So that's when, that's when we made the decision of, of changing a crop, um, and so we chose canola because of the, you know, kind of the, the flexibility that it offers for weed control, um, both in crop and, and before and after, uh, before seeding and after harvest. Um, and yeah, that was, you know, that was kind of something that had been mentioned as part of these discussions for the previous years, but that was kind of, um, you know, something that, we um, you know, required a bit of time to, we didn't want to make that decision lightly because yeah, you're right. It has been managed consistently. You know, oats have been part of the rotation there for, for many decades. So, um, so we didn't want to, wanted to be sure that changing a crop would not um, 
adversely affect the viability of the experiment. It's interesting, uh, and I'm curious, you know, is there anything that's not on the table in terms of managing some of these problems? Because you mentioned uh, wanting to go towards cultural controls first, which makes sense. Is there a way that we can do this that, that doesn't you know, change significantly the way we're approaching this? Um, <clears throat> you know, wanting to maybe steer away from adding something else to the rotation, but using a hockey stick to apply glyphosate, maybe not as practical on farm, um, but, but useful in small plot, but maybe not representative of what can happen on the farm. So does, I guess, does the practicality of farm management and the translation to farm management play a role in, in that decision-making of what to implement? Um, and I guess, what's the scale of what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable? That's it's an interesting approach. We have, um, I guess, constraints as well in terms of budget and, and labor. And, you know, it is a sm smaller area, but yeah, if, if you're starting to, you know, control weeds um that way it's 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 not practical even for us if you know it's not a long-term solution maybe you know trying it a couple growing seasons was was maybe an option but if it, it wasn't practical long term so yeah those practical considerations do do come into play so like i guess like uh you know similar to how a um, farm would make decisions we have to kind of weigh the the costs and the benefits and um, so even you know I guess uh, the decision to to replace the oats with canola maybe um, it, it was at the point where the ben the perceived benefits associated with that decision were were much greater than kind of the, the detracting um, you know the 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 costs so um you know just because you know if if we didn't do that if we didn't take action then you know five ten years down the road maybe the experiment wouldn't be viable anyways so so we had to we had to keep that keep kind of the longer term in mind like keep keep the history in mind but also keep the future in mind Right, we want these uh, we want these plots to continue, and uh, so we have to make our make our decisions kind of balancing those two two factors: the, the history and, and the future. Yes, in a, in a way, it kind of you know mirrors the challenges that that producers face when when an kind of unexpected or or growing concern starts to come along and ask the question of okay, is our is our system going to have to change a little bit to accommodate this, even though this isn't the way we've done it. Uh, and it wasn't in the plan, but um, is it going to solve our problem in the long term and, and still provide the same goal? So I'm I'm curious to learn more about this uh, classical rotation um, that was implemented in 1929. Was this the reason that the Breton plots were were put in place? Is this all part of that tied together? Um, how did that kind of come about? If you could talk about that, Miles. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting history, and um, uh, so I. I know a little bit uh, based on what I've read and, and from Jim Robertson, who's an emeritus professor um, in our department and, and has been, uh, you know, a long-term member of the management team as well. Um, just he's not been so active recently. Um, he's in his nineties now. So, he, but it, you know, he, he continued to serve um, the management team well, long after he was retired, you know, up, up until, um, the last couple of years so uh and you know we still ask him for advice uh here and there but he um just wanted to make sure i mentioned him uh the the history um so frank wyatt and john newton were two of the original soil scientists at the university of alberta here um and uh, I'm not sure how they made the connection with um, uh, Ben Flesher at the at, at Breton, but uh, I guess part of their mandate as soil science professors was to um, do soil surveys for the province, and um, you know part of those soil surveys were about um, you know assessing the land capability for agriculture. And, 
you know, to, to help the farmers in Alberta uh, find suitable ways of, of managing the land. And so um, the soils at, at Breton are in the gray soil zone. So they were developed originally under boreal forest and uh, the, the settlers to the, the Breton area, um, you know, cleared, cleared the forest and converted um, quite a bit of that land to agriculture, you know, starting with small parcels and then, then increasing over time. So, um, so Frank Wyatt made the connection with, with Ben Flesher, who was the, um, a farmer in the Breton area. And I guess he was struggling with, um, with growing crops on these soils. And so I guess, um, uh, you know, Frank, Frank Wyatt said, well, we should do some research to, to see, you know, what, I guess right away he, he was thinking about nutrient deficiencies. And so a lot of the initial research was, um, uh, I guess the classical plots were designed to test um, rotation as well as um, nutrient uh, fertilizer applications. Um, and so, so I think, you know, at that time they called it a, like a cropping system, which would be the rotation and the fertility management. Well, that's a term we still use today. But I think that, you know, in some of the older literature, the, the goal was to, to discover or find a system of farming that was viable for, for these soils. Um, and so the, I guess the, the classical plots were kind of designed with that in mind. Um, because at that time, I guess it was known that um, legumes, um, like nitrogen fixing for uh, crops, and um, they used clover initially and then switched to alfalfa later. Uh, the soil building characteristics of those crops were known already at that time. And um, fertilizers were starting to become more available. And so um, that was the other aspect of, you know, understanding the nutrient requirements for these soils, as well as which crops seem to grow better in these, in these soils. So, okay, the, the Breton plots, they're in gray soil. So what, what's the environmental conditions like in this area? What are we, what are we dealing with for production? Well, it's a short growing season. Um, so sh shorter than like Edmonton, um, a little bit cooler, a little bit, I guess, wetter. So it's kind of considered a sub humid climate. So we're kind of getting to the point where annual precipitation is close, very close to meeting the annual evaporative demand. Um, so, so the water um, stress is not so much an issue. Uh, I guess a bigger issue for farmers in the Breton area and in that kind of gray soil zone area uh, in Northwestern Alberta um, is, um, I guess is the shorter growing season and, you know, the being able to, to get on to the land and, um, you know, the windows for agricultural operations like seeding and harvest. Um, yeah, so those are kind of the, the biggest um, challenges. Uh, and, and then, so that's the climatic challenge. The, the soil challenge traditionally has been um, because they were forest soils in, a, in, a, in the boreal forest, all the organic matter is stored on the surface in the leaf litter layer, which is different than, than a black soil where most of the organic matter is in the, in the mineral, in the A horizon. Um, so when, when gray soils are converted to agriculture, a lot of the organic matter in the forest floor is removed or lost um, if, if it's not properly incorporated. And, and, and that was especially the case, I guess, um, around the Breton area or the Breton plots anyways. So, um, so initially when the land is converted to agriculture, the topsoil is low in organic matter and is susceptible to compaction and crusting because uh, that organic matter offers, you know, um, I guess tilth is kind of the old fashioned term, you know, that um, contributes to the soil's workability and resilience to, um, you know, disturbances like intense rainfalls or or trafficking when it's a, a little bit wet, you know, that those kind of things. So, 
Um, so, you know, if, um, uh, you know, the good news is that with, um, with careful management, the organic matter levels can be built up in these soils, you know, quite to quite an extent and in a relatively short period of time. You know, we've, we've, we've seen significant changes to the amount of organic matter in these soils over the course, like over a 10 year period. So, um, so, uh, so that's the good news, but, you know, still because of the, the climate and because of the, the tr traditionally lower organic matter, they, they do still have, you know, some, a little more, they're a little more challenging to work with than some of the other, say, black soils or dark brown soils. So when they first put in these classical plots, what, what treatments did they implement? What comparisons were being made at, at that point? Were they, were they extracting information relatively quickly or, um, you know, did it take a number of years based on what they were looking to implement? Well, uh, yeah, it, it did. They did evolve within the first 20 years uh, a little bit, but I guess initially they did have the two rotations. So the wheat fallow rotation, but it was initially a four year rotation. So they only had one, one year of, um, I think a clover, maybe grass mix for the forage crop. And, and then, um, I don't think it was until the, the, the sixties that it, um, uh, they changed it to a five-year rotation with a alfalfa brome mixture for the, for the forage phase, two years of forage alfalfa brome, uh, established, um, through underseeding in the barley phase. Um, so that, so that came along a little bit later, I guess that was a, a tweak or an improvement, what they saw would be an improvement to the rotation. Um, and then they uh, superimposed on the rotations, they established a number of fertility treatments um, that were, I think, basically guided by the fertilizers that were available at the time, um, and including uh, lime as well. So, so I guess one of the treatments included ammonium sulfate, one of the fertility treatments. Um, they had um, treatments with uh, phosphorus, um, the triple super phosphorus, which was available at, at the time. Um, and um, probably, I can't recall uh, for sure, but probably a potassium product of some kind, probably potash. Um, if not initially, then shortly after they were, they were started. So, um, uh, and, and they got really good information from those. I mean, the interesting thing was um, they didn't, they couldn't, because of the ammonium sulfate, they couldn't apply the sulfur and the nitrogen separately. They, they went on together. And so, um, you know, there was actually a, a little bit of a controversy between two the Frank Wyatt and, um, and Newton, who, who were the, to kind of original researchers at the plots about, you know, how much of the response to fertilizer was a result of nitrogen and how much was a result of sulfur. And so that was kind of one of the, the big, um, kind of big findings earlier um, the, uh, was, uh, it was Newton who, who discovered that the soils were deficient in sulfur and, and the crops responded uh, significantly to sulfur, especially the forage crops. Uh, you know, they have a, quite a bit of a, a higher sulfur demand than, than the cereal crops. Um, and then in, uh, it wasn't until 1980 that the fertility treatments were changed in terms of the, the fertilizer products. So then the, the treatments were modified slightly so we could identify, uh, we could single out uh, individual nutrients. Um, so there's a treatment with um, NPK and S, all four macronutrients as a balanced um, fertilization, but then we have um, nutrient exclusion treatments. So um, that each exclude one of NPK or S. Um, so we can understand the response to uh, the individual macronutrients. And, uh, and then also another kind of story that we have with these soils is their 
there's susceptibility to acidification, um, especially with the nitrogen fertilizers. Um, Long-term application, you know, the the for example, urea when it's added to the soil, it's broken down and converted into nitrate. Eventually, that's an acid-producing process, and uh, so because of the uh, initially low organic matter and um, you know, they just, uh, these soils aren't buffered as well as some of the black and dark brown soils or even brown soils. So, so they're susceptible to acidification. So we've, um, another treatment is, is liming. And so we've, we've had a long history of liming at the Breton Plots. Um, certain treatments are um, tested every five years for pH, the soil is tested. And if the pH falls below six, we add enough lime to bring it back up to 6.5. Uh, and then we have controls as well, which aren't lime. So, so we see, um, you know, it's really the alfalfa that is the most sensitive crop to pH that we have out there. And um, so in the, in the plots that aren't limed, we really see the alfalfa never really gets established um, and the what we have in those forage plots is volunteer clover. <laughs> so, okay, so long history, a number of changes that have come throughout history to to kind of keep up with pr what producers are actually doing. Um, and maybe you've listed them a, a few uh, in in your past statements. You know, looking at nutrient exclusion and what that means, and lime application and what that means for each crop. What kind of information are we pulling from these classical plots right now or is is information being published from this is is this mostly a demonstration um you know what where is this work going to now is there is there information that can apply to producers decisions today and then you know what is what is the plan going forward for these classical plots sure certainly um yeah well i um i have had the the privilege to conduct some uh you know, shorter term experiments uh, on top of, I guess, the classical plots, or we kind of say pig piggybacking, I guess. So one of those was um, between 2013 and 2018 uh, or seven, five, five growing seasons, we measured some nitrous oxide emissions um, on the wheat fallow and the, five, and the cereal forage rotation on the different fertility treatments. Um, so we could compare the effect of rotation and the effect of um, fertilizer on, on nitrous oxide emissions, um, greenhouse gas emissions from, from the soil. And so, um, so what we found there actually was that the, the rotation had a bigger impact than the fertilizer treatments. So um, it's, it's kind of hard to separate them, but if you think about over the long term, um, including the, the, the alfalfa brome in the five-year rotation, that um, additional nitrogen from biological fixation in the alfalfa, you know, contributed to um, accumulation of soil organic nitrogen over time. So the, I guess basically the, the, the long-term soil nitrogen balance is much different in the, in the five-year rotation compared to the wheat fallow rotation, which, you know, thinking about it isn't, isn't really a surprise, but, but that difference um, showed up in the nitrous oxide emissions much more so than the individual fertilizer treatments. Um, so for example, in the five-year rotation, the, the average growing season emissions in the plot receiving nitrogen, like all four macronutrients, was very similar to the plot receiving um, PKNS, but not nitrogen, right? So that, that you know, additional benefit or the additional input of the fertilizer nitrogen in any given year was not as significant to the emissions as the long-term nitrogen balance of the rotation. So the, the longer rotation had more nitrous oxide release than the wheat fallow. Yes, it did. Um, but it was also much more productive. 
Um, so it, when we looked at the, the crop yields, um, we just focused on the wheat phase of the rotation. So the, the wheat yields were, were higher than, um, than the wheat fallow rotation, as well as the crop recovery of nitrogen. So we measured the crop uptake in the grain and the straw, and it was um, significantly higher in the, in the five-year rotation. So when we look at the emissions from an intensity perspective, so the amount of emissions per, say, kilogram of grain produced, um, the, the five-year rotation had lower intensity, uh, emission so, intensity, yeah. So, you know, this, this then, I guess, really ties into that sustainable intensification question of, of how do we, you know, produce more while emitting less. So wheat fallow rotation, certainly not as common today as it has been. So, I guess, what does this mean for producers today in their rotation? Is there something that we can take away from this? Because this is, this is valuable information that, that Breton is um, um, pulling together. So, you know, what can producers take from this for their, for their rotations today? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, and I, uh, if I understand the, the current policy traje trajectory, uh, you know, I think the, there's maybe a little bit of pressure to reduce fertilizer applications, um, not just from a soils emissions perspective, but from a, a whole kind of carbon footprint uh, perspective, the manufacture of these products uh, takes a lot of energy and the transport takes a lot of energy. So, um, you know, that's uh, maybe, you know, that's maybe not a desirable um, direction for a lot of people, but I think, you know, if, if um, rotations are changed to include um, more biological fixation, for example, through pulses or through um, forage legumes, you know, the results from Breton show that that is a long-term source of nitrogen for the annual crops. Um, and so really, I think if we uh, if we could shift, uh, if we want to reduce fertilizer applications, um, not saying we should, but if we wanted to do that, I think it's possible through uh, shifting our perspective to managing the soil nitrogen balance over a longer term uh, rather than a year-to-year -year, uh, decision. Yeah. It's really not just the silo of what we're putting down in terms of nitrogen. It's It's what system is that nitrogen going down in? Uh, and I, uh, we, we have this discussion with the assumption that everyone is aware of, of the, the impact and the significance of N2O um, and its relation to, to the impact of CO2, um, which these are we're both greenhouse gases, but play a very different role probably in the policy discussions at this point. Um, so maybe if I could get you to just, just touch on, I realize it's a big topic, um, but if you could just touch on that quickly, Miles, I think it would, it would certainly help. Sure. No problem. Uh, I, I guess the uh, nitrous oxide in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, nitrous oxide is, is one that agriculture produces a little bit disproportionately to other sectors of the economy or other industries. Um, and it has a greater global warming potential than carbon dioxide. I think the, I think it's a 300 times greater than carbon dioxide in terms of um, greenhouse gas or global warming potential or so basically one molecule of nitrous oxide is equivalent to 300 molecules of carbon dioxide um, in terms of how it affects um, the atmosphere. And so that's kind of where the push is coming from. You know, even though the overall emissions of nitrous oxide are pretty small compared to carbon dioxide, um, they do have a significant impact. So. Anything we can do in agriculture to kind of um, reduce those emissions, even by a small amount, has a has an impact. Um, so that's kind of where that 
is is motivated. So were these um, are these kind of research projects ongoing? Looking at at uh, emissions, um, you know, again, this very much ties into uh, for our nutrient stewardship and and looking at you know right place, right time, uh, source. Um, are are any of these part of what Breton is looking at as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the nutrient stewardship and the greenhouse gas emissions they kind of go hand in hand. So. So, you know, that uh, my research on nitrous oxide also was, it was funded by Fertilizer Canada and then the federal government. Um, and the other focus of that work was um, kind of the nutrient stewardship piece. And um, so I think the story there was just the, um, not just about nitrogen management, but, you know, the, to, to increase um, the efficiency of the nitrogen that is applied, um, you require adequate application of the other macronutrients as well. Um, so phosphorus, sulfur, and potassium is, is kind of what that showed. Um, you know, in terms of reducing that emission intensity, the, the lowest intensities were on the plots receiving all four macronutrients, um, so balanced fertilization. So that... You know, that um, is kind of the, the story about nutrient stewardship there. Um, I should mention that my colleague Guillermo Hernandez had a long-term study looking at um, perennial cereals on um, soil carbon sequestration and greenhouse gas emissions uh, at the Breton Plots as well. And um, I don't know a lot of details about that, but um, I'm sure he'd be happy to, to talk to you about that too one of these days. Um, and yeah, right now we, um, you know, in terms of, of longer term, uh, sorry, not longer term, but, um, another, um, project that started recently that I've received funding for is looking at, um, you know, the coordinated management of nitrogen and sulfur, um, for annual and forage crops. Uh, as well, because there's, um, you know, quite a few newer um, sulfur fertilizer products that have come come on the market recently. So this research is kind of kind of looking at at those um, in a short term and a long term perspective. So kind kind of like I mentioned, the long term effects on nitrous oxide emissions. Um, there are long-term effects of, you know, the balances of other macronutrients in the soil. Um, so especially with sulfur, um, for example, we're, we're comparing um, crop response, um, canola and wheat response to sulfur in the classical plots. Um, so we're comparing it on the treatments that have received sulfur for decades. And then we have a, a plot um, in that rotation that hasn't received uh, any fertilizer since 1929. And so then uh, it's like, a, like an extra check plot. Um, so we've established shorter term treatments uh, on that kind of sub-treatments in that plot. Um, so we're seeing what happens after we add nitrogen and sulfur fertilizer to that soil that hasn't received any fertilizer for, for 90 years. And so, you know, does it, does it match the soil that received sulfur for decades right away? Or does it take time, right? Can you, can you just replace soil nutrients with fertilizer nutrients and the, res the response is instantaneous? Or is there other effects um, or other requirements in terms of having a, a population of microorganisms that are able to um, transform those fertilizers into plant available um, nutrients. Yeah. Well, I was like, I, I can help but think what it would be like to be that tech who gets handed that task of go, go, go apply this urea to this field that uh, hasn't seen any, anything for 90 some odd years. 
He's like, are you sure this this spot here? This is where you want me to put it down. <laughs> yeah, we're just looking at the the data from our first growing season, which was last year. But yeah, it's uh, it's too, the drought kind of confounded things, unfortunately. But um, you know, we still on those control plots that haven't received any fertilizer for ninety years. You know, we still get a crop. Um, it's a very poor crop, but you know, we still get, we still get crops from it. So, um, but it's, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the fertilizers that are going to apply to that, those plots. You know, it, I think it's, it's very important for us to be looking at, you know, how some of these management practices uh, affect the influence um, and envir- environmental factors, um, source rate, where we're placing it. These are all important questions, um, but just as important, you know, are we looking at the economic factors within these trials as well? Is that is that part of the assessment of, of these treatments? It, you know, traditionally it hasn't been as big as kind of the soil uh, aspects, but um, we do have a long-term database um and so certainly post hoc economic analysis would be possible um also there's um another project that uh, recently started that's led by uh edward bork from the department of agriculture food and nutritional sciences and i'm collaborating with on the project as well and it's looking at the um the economics of including forages in rotation with grains and not just in terms of the economics of production you know profits associated with yield and and that kind of stuff but also the the economics associated with the carbon um uh, carbon sequestration in the soil and um and soil health um so it's yeah it's a little different than what we would usually think of economics but but this is kind of a you know i'm really pleased that we got this funding um through ardar and through the beef cattle research council to look at this question um uh, because it you know i think maybe it, it will help you know the agricultural community think about you know how you know given given the economic pressures and environmental pressures. How do we want to manage our cropping systems in the future? And, and, you know, I think these are questions that uh, more and more producers are going to have to ask themselves um, as some of these policy considerations grow. Um, And, and, you know, we've, we've, as Canada have um, kind of set expectations for ourselves on a global stage and and that is now cascading down to producers and how they manage their crop um, so it's becoming a question that's that's more and more relevant to producers across the province across western canada every day um, so you know with that how can producers get involved in understanding what's going on at breton plots can they come out and visit is there resources that they can get in touch with um, is there planned field days for this year? Because uh, I imagine there'd be uh, producers very interested to come out and, and see what's going on. They can contact me directly. You can send me an email. We have a we have a website for the Breton plots, and I'll I'll send that to you. So um, maybe you can put it in the notes for the podcast or something like that. Um, and so there's some information on the website. Uh, we. We do have, we don't have field days every year, but we're due for one. Um, so we haven't made the decision about this year yet. Um, just, you know, all the uncertainty so far, but it looks like things are improving. So, so I would, um, you know, say, keep, keep checking the website and, and um, certainly if we do decide to have one, I'll, I'll let you know, so you can uh, help us spread the word, the word there. So, you know, we are due for a field day. So. Uh, the last one we had was 2019, I think. People can come visit any any time. You know, the best time to come out is in the summer when the crops are growing. And um, uh, yeah, it's uh, they just need to to contact me or Dick, and we can make arrangements to meet them out there. And um, yeah, show them around. What's the best way to get a hold of you, Miles? Uh, through my email. So uh, it's you know m d y c k at uvalberta dot c a. But uh, yeah, you can put that in the 
in the notes on the podcast too, for sure. Yeah. Perfect. Well, this has been uh, very enlightening. I know I've been out to the Breton plots a few times, uh, but it's great to to have a conversation about what goes on there and um, you know, what you guys are working on. Uh, is there anything else you want to say, Miles, before we finish up? Otherwise, you know, this has been a great conversation and I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for the conversation. And, you know, I, I'm, I love talking about the long-term experiments at the plots, but I also want to mention that we do run short-term experiments as well. You know, as we get funding, one of the ones we've been running for the last five years or so is uh, is hemp demonstrations, industrial hemp demonstrations that are in partnership with Clearwater County. And uh, so that's been kind of a, an important uh, role that Breton's played there. And there are uh, a couple other researchers, uh, professors in Renew the Department of Renewable Resources here, Scott Chang and Derek McKenzie that are running uh, experiments at the plots looking at the effects of biochar applications to soils on on the soil, on greenhouse gas emissions and on um, nitrogen transformations in the soil. So, um, so yeah, we um, it's good. There's a lot. There's a lot going on out there. We've got a lot of interest, and uh, yeah, we're we're happy to share information. So if they go, there'll be lots to see. Then is what you're telling me. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we'll make sure that. Uh, they see lots and learn lots for sure okay well again thank you miles and uh hopefully i'll see you sometime this summer yeah i hope so too thanks very much for having me on okay thanks miles thanks for listening to the growing point podcast if you enjoyed this podcast please take a second to rate review and share this podcast with all of your friends this helps us grow and get our message out you can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to albertawheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.